Good morning. All right, we're going to be in Nehemiah 5, as Amanda just reminded us. We'll do that in just a moment, but I do want to encourage you. A lot of our announcements that you see, especially during our announcement time here in video, uh, are reminders of things coming up. And, and one particular, I want to try to highlight that surviving the holidays that Grief Share does and will be hosting here. If that's something that uh, is near to your heart, if that's something that uh, you're experiencing through these holidays, we do understand. While the holidays are a wonderful time to celebrate, and wonderful, we have a wonderful Savior to celebrate, uh, it's also a difficult time for many. So we want to encourage you, if that's something that you could benefit from, or maybe even you're wondering if you should be there, talk to one of us and, and uh, let's talk about that. And we would love to have you experience that, be walking through that with people who also are walking through similar times, but maybe even some who have gone through it before you and could give you some hope and some perspective on that. We'd love for the holidays to be a wonderful time for you as well. Nehemiah chapter 5. As we dig in here, we, we just as a slight recap, I know we've had a lot going on. We had Thanksgiving this week since, since last Sunday and a lot of different things. I want to encourage you, if you missed our Thanksgiving Eve service, uh, you can still go back and watch it. Um, it's all posted there in our app and online and everywhere. Um, I would encourage you to do that. Some of the folks from our, our church family were able to share some of the things God's doing in them and through them and some of the ways God's using them. So it would be a great encouragement. If you happen to miss that, go ahead and grab it. But last Sunday, we finished Nehemiah chapter 4. And Nehemiah chapter 4 was this kind of turning point in the midst of this story that we're watching uh, with Nehemiah and God's people and how God's providing. Because the turning point was the opposition, which had previously just kind of been murmurings and rumors, became very real. There were real threats that came into play in Nehemiah 4. And there were some ways that Satan attacked the people of God and the mission of God in order to distract them from doing what God had called them to do. And as we jumped in there, there was four distinct things that Satan tried to use. Ridicule, intimidation, discouragement, and fear. Four very real things. And we talked about how those can also be very real for us today. If you've been walking with the Lord for a short period of time or for a long period of time, you probably have experienced some of those things. But one of the key aspects, and this is we go into chapter five, the key aspect that we want to see from Nehemiah and from God working in the people of God there is that they did not deter from the mission. There was distraction, there was discouragement, there was intimidation, there was threat of war. There was all these things coming in. There were rumors being spread, but the people of God stayed intent on the mission of God. It's such a great example for us to be able to look at because there's lots of distractions in our world today. Some of them are just things that might get your attention focused on other things, but some of them can be very discouraging. And as you live for God in our world, there will be moments where others will ridicule, try to bring fear or discouragement into your life, or even try to intimidate you. These things are real and they happen. Don't be caught by surprise. Instead, have your hearts prepared. Know God's word. Know the example that God has given us for generations and generations before us on how to remain faithful to what he's called us to do. And as we do that, we can go forward together as God's people on God's mission. Nehemiah 5 takes a turn into another obstacle that gets placed in the way of God's people doing what he's called them to do, particularly the fact that when Satan does not succeed in distracting God's people from outside of the people of God, he will go inside the people of God and try to discourage the efforts there. 
This is not new. This is what Satan has been doing forever, trying to create division and derisions inside God's people so that even then the mission might slow down and less people will see God for who he is and be able to respond to him because the people of God are fighting with each other. And what we see in Nehemiah 5 is this transition. It goes from the, the distractions and the discouragement being external to now the discouragement and some of the hardships being internal to the people of God. And particularly our focus for Nehemiah 5 is this. God's people are called to reflect God's heart. God's people are called to reflect God's heart. And particularly as we look at what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 5, there is oppression going on amongst God's people. And God's heart is not for that. God seeks to root out oppression, not only amongst his people, but with his people in our world. To work against the kind of oppression that we're going to read here in these 13 verses of chapter 5, the first part. This kind of oppression was happening between the Jews. And it was very, a very real threat to derailing the entire process that God had put in place here. Let's read Ephesians, or Nehemiah. Yeah, Ephesians is a good chapter too, if you want to go there. Um, Ephesians 5. But we're going to be in Nehemiah today. Um, so, Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's jump in. We're going to read the first 13 verses together. We'll dig in and see what God has for us. Verse 1 says... Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find, could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts, of the taunts of the nations of our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor, who does not keep this promise. So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people 
did as they had promised. See, here Nehemiah, being the leader that he is, that God has empowered him and called him to be, he had to take account because a good portion of the people of Israel had come and started crying out because they were oppressed. There was no way for them to continue doing what God had called them to do because of their lot at home. They had no money. There was a famine going on. They were struggling to eat and feed their families. So there was all these financial structures that got put in place that one, were not part of God's plan, and two, kept the, the poor down and kept the wealthy making money off of the poor inside of the Jewish population. They were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters inside of the nation of Israel. God not only did not want this to happen, he actually decreed particular rules for any kind of financial dealings. In the Pentateuch, there's lots of guidelines set up, and the people of God were not adhering to them here. They were oppressing the people around them. It says there was a great cry, a great outcry in verse 1. It says the people cried out and their wives against the Jewish brothers. This is the beginning of a protest. People were showing up. Remember what's going on at this point. The people who, who Nehemiah had placed in the workforce are up on the wall. They're rebuilding the wall. They've got their sword and their trowel in their hands. And they're ready to fight at a moment's notice, but they're trying to get the work done that God's called them to do. In the last chapter, Nehemiah pre prepared them for whatever was coming by saying, be ready to fight. Be ready to fight for your brothers and your sisters, for your wives and your children. Be ready to fight for the Lord and for our nation. And right in the midst of Nehemiah preparing his people and calling God's people to do all those things, this is what's going on. Oppression is not part of God's heart. It happens. We live in a broken world, and oppression is all around us. But here's why I believe these 13 verses are so important for us as God's people. We should not turn a blind eye to the oppression that happens in our world. God does not turn a blind eye, and he calls his people to not turn a blind eye to it. He brought it in front of Nehemiah's face by creating an outcry, literally a protest, in front of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, remember, he, Nehemiah's got a lot on his plate at this point, right? He's got four nations coming from the outside trying to stop the work. He's got people getting scared. He had to reconstitute how they were doing the work. He had to arm part of the people so that they could protect the work being done. Nehemiah's got a lot going on here. And all of a sudden, he turns around from the work, and there is a mass of people crying out about the oppression that's happening right inside of the walls that they're trying to rebuild. So what was going on here? Let's look at these first four verses. The crisis that arose, there's four distinct groups of people that are mentioned in the midst of this crisis. So if you're a note taker and you've got your scripture journal out, go ahead and start taking notes. Remember, we've got these. You can take them every week and work on them in between. Write down these four groups of people that are in here because I'm convinced of this. At some point in this chapter, God is going to convict your heart. Much like he's done mine as I've tried to prepare to bring it to you. 
We won't all be convicted in the same way, but the Lord will draw his conviction upon us and he wants to give us an opportunity to respond, just like he did to the people here. Four groups of people. The first, in verse two, there were people who owned no land but needed food. There's people inside of the Jewish population, inside the walls of Jerusalem, they did not have land to grow food, but they obviously needed to eat, but they also did not have the money or the means to make the money in order to buy the food to bring to their families. This is a problem. Not everyone starts from the same point in life. We need to realize this. These particular people did not have the advantage of having land passed down to them that they could grow crops on, that they could make food for their own family or sell in order to make money to buy food for their family. They didn't have that opportunity. That's the first group of people that we see here. Secondly, there were landowners who owned land who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. So then there were some people who did have land But the famine was so bad, they weren't growing enough food that they mortgaged their land in order to have money to buy food that did exist. Second group of people, the third group, there were those who were complaining about the taxes that had been put on them by the king of Persia. Remember, this is, they are not an independent nation at this point. Nehemiah actually came from serving Artaxerxes, so he's there and there is a tax to be paid. There's people complaining about the taxes and that because in order to pay the taxes, they had to borrow money in order to pay the taxes. But the money they borrowed, they had to pay back and they were getting charged interest on. This is not a good cycle, right? And there's a fourth group of people. Those who were the wealthy Jews who were exploiting their brothers and sisters in a couple of ways, by loaning them money and taking their land and also taking their children as collateral. So this is a a whole nother level. The wealthy amongst them were not being generous. They were not fighting oppression. They were not helping with their wealth. Instead, they were building their wealth by putting down those who couldn't afford. Remember, they're in the midst of a famine here. So the food is scarce. And people are doing whatever they can in order to sustain their families. See, God's people should respond to times of scarcity and famine and hardship differently than the world around us. I love the picture in Acts chapter 2. When you go to Acts chapter 2 and you read through the early church, God sends his spirit down at Pentecost. The church is sent out into all the world. And then all of a sudden we start to see these accounts of how the church was living their everyday life. And it says this, some of them were selling what they had so that others could have. And it says in Acts chapter two that none were in need. It doesn't mean everybody had the same amount of stuff. It just means everybody had enough to survive because God's people took care of the other part of God's people. This isn't what we're seeing here in Nehemiah 5. It's actually the opposite of what we see in Acts chapter 2. Nobody's selling what they have in order to provide for somebody else. They're actually making those who don't have sell what they have in order to keep going. God's not honored by this. Leviticus chapter 25. You can write this reference down. I'm just going to read it for us, but you can go back and look at it later in your study. Leviticus 25, verse 39 through 41. 
says this, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return the possession of his fathers. See, God built up a system so that those who were in need, those who were maybe down on a particular season, there was always the opportunity for them to get back what they had previously and for them to be released from their debt. This is taught all through God's word. His law is actually, it doesn't mean that you won't have moments or times where you might have to go through a hardship. Or it does say, if your brother or sister come to you and they need to sell themselves to you, they're not treated like a slave. They're treated like a fellow sojourner. They're treated like a, a gifted worker. God wants us to see his image in every person we come across. And especially he wants us to see his redeemed image in those that he has brought into his family. This, is, this has always been God's nature. But I'll tell you what, Satan tries to derail everything. He tries to derail everything God is doing. And he will try lots of ways He's already tried fear and discouragement, intimidation, and mocking, all those things in chapter four. Now he's trying, well, maybe I can just get God's people to stop looking like God's people. They stop looking like God's people. They stop living like God's people. Then nobody around them is really gonna wanna be about them or be drawn towards them because they're gonna look like everybody else. So let's try this area. Finances and oppression. And let's see if Satan's thinking, let's see if I can get God's people to do what everybody else does. And therefore, nobody will be encouraged to come follow their God. Nehemiah responds here. After these first five verses, where these four different groups of people are described, Nehemiah responds. And here's one of the things I love about Nehemiah. You start reading how Nehemiah responds. He gives us his gut reaction, his emotion, and then he does what Nehemiah always does. So if you've been with us and you've been studying with us or following along with us, what is Nehemiah going to do? He's going to pray. Okay? This is just what Nehemiah does. It doesn't mean he doesn't respond because he does. Immediately in verse 6, it says what? I was very angry. Nehemiah was ticked off. All of a sudden, there's all these people standing behind him, and he's thinking to himself, you got to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes, right? Thinking to himself, I am trying to keep four nations who all have armies outside these walls from coming and killing us. And I'm trying to keep the walls getting built here, because that's what God's called us to do in order to restore his reputation amongst the people around us. And I turn around, and I've got people totally oppressed, without food, selling themselves or selling their children in order to have money to get food right inside our own walls. Nehemiah was ticked. And this isn't the kind of emotion angry that's a sin. This is a righteous anger. Because what God had already decreed and the people already knew from the Pentateuch was not to do this kind of stuff. 
Nehemiah is not just ticked because he doesn't like seeing it. He's ticked because the image of God is being defamed. And the image of God is being defamed inside Jerusalem, and the image of God is then going to be defamed outside of Jerusalem. And the whole point that Nehemiah left his home and came back to Jerusalem was to restore the glory of Jerusalem so that the reputation of God is seen. That's why he's there. And this has deep ramifications inside here. The potential here is the people start division inside, and even if the walls get built, people will just see it as they built some walls, but they don't even like each other. They can't treat each other the way they're supposed to. Look at them. They're exacting payments that are totally unjust on each other. And God would not be seen for who he is, who is somebody who fights for the oppressed. God is someone who restores the downtrodden. He is someone who has called his people to take care of those who have less than them. So Nehemiah responds. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So his first response to the four different kinds of groups that are described in the first five verses in verse six, he is upset. And here's where I, I think we, we need to be a little careful here, okay? Righteous anger can motivate you towards righteous response. But unrighteous anger will take you down a completely different path. See, the Bible doesn't tell us it's never wrong to be upset. But it does instruct us the right things to be upset about, and it instructs us the right way to be upset. And we see that get worked out here with Nehemiah. He is angry. What does he do? He pauses. Remember, we talked about this earlier. What is the first thing we should do when we see an injustice happening, when we see something we don't like? Take a moment and sit down. That's what Nehemiah did in chapter one and two, remember? He wanted to respond. He wanted to head right out from under being the king's cupbearer. He wanted to get right back to Jerusalem. But what did he do? He stopped. He stopped. Because he didn't want his response to be out of the flesh. He wanted his response to be led by the Lord. It's not wrong to be upset. But we need to know ourselves well enough to know that responding in the moment often means responding in the flesh. Instead, taking a moment and listening to the Lord and giving your anger to him will oftentimes lead you to a godly response. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Verse two, or verse seven. What does he do next? His first response is he's angry. His next response is consultation. This may sound like a strange verse. Verse seven, I took counsel with myself. Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? So I took a step back and I said to myself, self, what should we do here? Right? It's not really what he's saying, okay? He says, I took counsel with myself. Literally what he's saying here is, I took a personal inventory of why I was upset and what I should do about it. He paused. 
And I'm sure we don't have the elaboration here, but we know from Nehemiah's character, I'm sure he stopped and asked the question, is this good anger or bad anger? Is this righteous anger or unrighteous anger? What am I actually upset about? Let's kind of get down to the root here. And after he does this, the Lord leads him to respond well. His first response is anger. His second response is consultation. He says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He was not afraid. We talked about not being afraid because perfect love casts out fear and God brings us perfect love, most importantly through Jesus. So we have no reason to be afraid. Nehemiah was not afraid here. He was not afraid in the previous chapter when he had to address external oppression. Now he's addressing internal oppression. And he's not afraid here either. What Nehemiah is about to say could be taken as very unpopular amongst God's people. He's about to call him to account here. And he, I'm sure he's very well aware, if I say this, I could have a literal uprising on my hand. I could be tossed right out of here. So as he prays and as he takes account and before he goes with the charges, he courageously does exactly what God convicts and leads him to do. It says, I said to them, you are exacting interest even from his brother, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. Remember, this is a gathering back. Nehemiah has come in, and many Jews have come back to Jerusalem when they were out in captivity. They've made their way back, which is a huge thing. He says they were sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. I'm sure they thought of some words to say. But they all knew that he was right. This is not how God's people have been called to live. This is not what God has instructed in Leviticus or throughout the Pentateuch. This is not the way that God wanted to be reflected to the world around him. He wanted his glory to be reflected accurately through his people. This needed correction. Nehemiah goes right at him. And it's silent. It's silent. Verse 9. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? This is where we see Nehemiah's heart being in the right place. Nehemiah is not just ticked off because some people have food and some people don't have food. He's ticked off because the fact that some of the people don't have food reflects poorly on God. This is how fighting oppression and working against oppression in our world can stay on track. It can stay on track if it's not about me or you, it's about God. If it stays about God, then the fight against oppression we see in our world, whether it's inside the family of God or outside, can stay on track and not get diluted and taken off in a bunch of little rabbit trails. God is concerned with one thing, that the world sees him for the good and gracious God that he is and that his people live like that. 
This is what God's concerned about. So that others can see, taste and see, as Psalms tells us, that he is good and be drawn to him. Verse 10, he says, not only that, but moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. That's an interesting verse. Nehemiah calls the people to fear the Lord and to protect his, God's reputation amongst the nations. Secondly, he tells them to stop charging interest against their brothers. But not only that, he holds himself accountable. See, in his taking of account that he did earlier, his consulting with himself, he realized, I unknowingly, unknowingly am part of the problem. I'm doing what I'm telling, I'm going to, in a moment here, tell them not to do. So he says, right out loud in front of everybody, he holds himself accountable. This is an amazing opportunity here. Nehemiah doesn't tell the people to do something he's not willing to do. And when Nehemiah noticed that he actually was doing something that wasn't in the best interest of God's people and the best interest of the glory of God being shown in the world, he says, you're going to stop charging interest, and I am too, because I shouldn't be doing it either. He was humble. He wasn't too big to say, yeah, I, didn't, I, I don't mean to do this. I, I didn't mean to, to do this, but now it's in front of me, and I see it, and I shouldn't have done it. So he calls himself to account, and then he calls all of them to account. He goes on in verse Number 11, there we are. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, their percentage of money, their grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So he says, not only are we not going to continue doing this, but we're also going to hit a reset here. Give everything back. It's this picture of what is laid out, we don't have time to unpack all this, but the year of Jubilee is, is something that's laid out in God's law. So there was a particular season after 50 years that everything that was either indebted or held by someone else, all of a sudden was, there was an automatic reset button in the people of Israel. So reset gets hit, everybody gets their stuff back, they start from a clean slate, and they are charged to use it well going forward and be good stewards of it. But you weren't to remain in debt and oppression forever. Nehemiah does that here. Nehemiah knows the law of God, and he hits reset here in Jerusalem. The people respond in a very unique way in verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I am convinced here that the reason that they do what he says is because he's going to do it first. Nehemiah held himself accountable. He was willing to go this road with them. And everybody that was not willing to say anything a few verses earlier now says, we're going to do what you said. That's right. See, for the people of God, when you declare truth, it dings something in their heart. See, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you and you know what God's called you to do, even if you've forgotten it more recently, when you're reminded of it, you know it. You know it's true. You might not like that it's true, 
but that's kind of inconsequential. That doesn't matter. The fact that it is true and is what God's called us to is what matters. The people respond with humility and they repent. But just in case they didn't really mean it, (laughs) here's what Nehemiah does. He says, well, I hear you, but I also know you. So we're going to get a priest in here. They pull a priest in. He pulls a priest in. He says, just in case you didn't really mean what you just said, now we're going to make it legit. Okay? Now you're going to understand this is a covenant between you and God, and I got a priest here that's going to hold you to it. So he says, I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. Nehemiah knew the hearts of men. He had been leading and dealing with men for a long time. He knew that they needed the fear of the Lord in order to hold the line. So he calls the priest and he says, listen, this isn't just between you and I. This is between you and God. So now we got God's men here. Let's talk about what we just said. You want to repeat it for them? This kind of reminds me of being younger, right? And when I would do something or try to twist the truth or try to get away with something, my dad would often kind of pull me in a room. He'd pull somebody else in that was either involved in the situation or already knew the truth. He's like, okay, so I know what you told me. You want to change your story? Are you going to stick with it? Right? And if you're telling the truth, you stick with it, right? And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He calls in the priests and he says, okay, you're not just saying it before me. You're going to say it before God and God's going to hold you accountable. But verse 13, he also says, just in case you think of going back on this, I'm going to pronounce in front of all of us and in front of God's, God's leaders here, the priests, I'm going to pronounce what's going to happen if you go back on this. Ready? Here we go. I also shook out the fold of my garment, which was symbolic. Okay? He took his garment, he shook it out. And now he says a few things after this, but you got to believe everybody that was standing there who was being held to account and the priests that were standing there, as soon as Nehemiah did the little shake out of the garment, they all knew what was going on. Because this is not a new concept to God's people. Nehemiah shakes out his garment and he says to them, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. So shaking out the garment was a symbol for those who had just entered into this covenant with God to do what God told them to do. And if they go back on it or don't do it, God's going to shake them out. And he's going to empty them out. Because here's something we need to realize. While God is gracious and forgiving when we come to him, there is also consequences for ignoring what God's called us to do or going back on something we've told God we're going to do. Forgiveness is real, but consequences are too. We need to be very aware that when we agree to do something for the Lord, it's better to say nothing than to say you're going to do it and don't do it. And he pulled the priests in here so that they knew exactly what they were getting into. This is not a legal issue that he's dealing with. 
This is not a financial issue that he's dealing with. What is it? This is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue about the glory of God and his goodness being reflected to the world around them. That's what this is about. It's not about money. It's not about food. It's not about debt. It's not about a slavery. It's not about interest. That's not what this is really about. All those things are symptoms of the real issue. The real issue is when you get away from protecting the glory of God and adhering to what he's called you to, this other stuff starts happening. And Nehemiah calls him back to center. And the center is the glory of God and his work in the world. That's the center. As he calls them back, the people respond with humility, and thank goodness they do. Nehemiah called it back to being a spiritual issue, which it truly was. In Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, here's one of the things that we see a mirror of this. What Nehemiah is correcting God's people for, which was already declared back in Leviticus and earlier in God's law, is carried much further. We get Jesus stating the exact same thing and how we should deal with each other and treat each other. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is this. When he's asked, what's the most important commandment? The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's the most important commandment. And the second most important commandment is this, verse 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you've got and love others. This is the call of God's people. It's the same in Nehemiah's time. It was the same in Leviticus. It's the same in Genesis. It's the same in Mark. It's the same now. Love God with everything you have and love others as yourself. If we can commit to do this and follow through, then God will use that to reflect his glory to every person that sees it. And they'll be drawn to him. Why? Because that looks so different than the world around us. That is not what's happening in the world around us. But it is what should be happening amongst us. The people of God looking different. It's vitally important to love God and to treat your brothers and sisters as he would have you treat them. And in doing so, protect the reputation of the Lord and draw others to himself. And all this, Mark 12 shows us that while people could dissect the Old Testament law and start to nitpick on everything, Jesus does this. Jesus shows us that he is not only all wise, but he is our great hope. Because Nehemiah, and what we're seeing in Nehemiah amongst the people of God, is only a precursor to the ultimate example of self-sacrifice for those who are oppressed, which is Jesus. He came to save those who are oppressed by sin, you and me and everyone else. And in that oppression, he gave everything, even to death. So that those who were repressed could be set free. He is our example. Don't get too caught up with Nehemiah, because Nehemiah actually admitted right in the middle he had screwed this up. 
God is our example, and Jesus is the flesh incarnation that shows us what this looks like. Are we willing to do it? Don't answer. Got to remember, this is serious. This is vitally serious. It's between you and the Lord. It's between God's people and the God who made them and redeemed them. If we are going to do what he has called us to do, to love him with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, and to love others as ourselves. It'll look so different to the world around us, nobody will even know what to do with it. The only response to it is to ask, am I going to respond to God's love the way that those people do? Am I going to be willing to set aside my sin knowing that he has set me free in Christ and accept his free payment and then live a life that's different in light of it. Jesus is our great hope. If you are in a season of life where you are feeling oppressed, know that God is for you. He's for you. And trust him. He is our great hope. And as we have already sung, he is good. Even if the world around us is not, even if at times your brothers and sisters in Christ are not, he is good. He is faithful. He will come through. So let's live like God has changed us and let's ask God to help us too.